Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the History of England, episode 278, The King's Honour. The Duke of Alba had been born in Spain in 1507 into one of the leading noble Castilian families. His service to Charles V was based on an absolute loyalty to authority and a firm Roman Catholicism. He was a talented and successful commander and his imperial service had brought him the success to which he had been bred to expect. By 1555, he had become Viceroy of the Kingdom of Naples for Philip II of Spain. But in 1556, his firm belief in the absolute supremacy of the universal Pope and his loyalty to his new master Philip II all were to be brought into conflict, and the outcome would have an impact far away in England. At the heart of the problem was Pope Paul IV, or Gian Pietro Carafa, as we have known him. I have mentioned Paul IV's fierce nationalism and towering hatred of the Spanish before, so the fact that France and Spain had managed to agree a truce at Vaucelles in February 1556 was not to Paul's liking. In April 1556, Paul visited his personal vendetta on the imperial allies in Rome, the Colonna family, declaring them to be rebels and confiscating their estates. As tension grew between Philip in Brussels and Paul in Rome, Paul stripped Philip of his title as King of Naples in July 1556, which could be described on the one hand as unfriendly and on the other hand as a pretty straightforward declaration of war. Our old friend Simon Renard, now Imperial Ambassador in France, reported that the Pope was rumoured to have raised an army of 10,000 men. While I'm on the topic, Mary Queen of England was not immune from the Pope's bile either, which is surprising given the good work she was doing for his cause. There is something genuinely unbalanced about Pope Pius IV. Since Mary was married to Philip, he refused to conduct any English business at all and described Mary as worthy of ecclesiastical censure. It has to be said that Mary appears to have been unconcerned. Committed to papal supremacy she might have been, but she was also perfectly capable of distinguishing between the office and the quality of its temporary holder. 
Back in Naples, conflicted as he was between his loyalties to both secular and ecclesiastical masters, the Duke of Alba convinced himself that this was a justified war of defence and invaded the Papal States in September 1556, and the only productive use of the Truce of Vossel was as toilet paper. Militarily trumped, Paul quickly arranged a truce in Italy, to which, as a good son of the church, Alba agreed. But Paul was just messing with him. Just a trick. The French Duke of Guise arrived in Italy with an army from France in January 1557, and the war was joined again. Why, I hear you ask, do I mention all of this? Well, one reason is to mention two names of which you will hear much more, Guise and Alba. The Guise were a noble family of the highest royal status in France and would become the leader of the Catholic faction in the French Wars of Religion. For the moment, Francois of Guise is the commander of the French army in Italy and his sister Mary of Guise is regent of Scotland, spookily enough, as wife of the deceased James V, who, according to the continual Scottish misfortune, died young. Just to finish the story of remembrance, the heir to the throne of France was, of course, Mary, Queen of Scots, now 14 and betrothed to the Dauphin of France. So it's all connected, you see. Anyway, Guise of France, Olba of Spain, remember well the names. The second reason for talking about all this is that the resumption of this war between Valois and Habsburg, which has been dragging on since 1494 and is seriously beginning to get tiresome, meant that Philip began feeling in need of friends, hopefully in friends carrying big sticks. It was not difficult to see what was coming. Philip would be coming to England to demand military support. Philip's envoy did indeed put the case to the council in the Queen's chambers in November, but the royal council set their face resolutely against the idea of war and would agree to no more than money and naval support. For the moment, the truce held in the Low Countries rather than Italy, and so although he was flat broke, Philip held back from pushing any harder, well aware that this wasn't a vote winner. And then, in January 1557, Henry II of France launched a surprise attack at Douai in Flanders, and the need suddenly became more pressing for Philip. Now, Mary was very keen to be helpful. She was well aware that under the marriage treaty, Philip had committed not to embroil England in a war of aggression, but England was committed to support Philip if he was attacked. It would have been within her rights as a monarch to simply declare war and have done. But Mary was a believer in the power of Parliament and consensus, so she was reluctant to do that, and instead she referred the question once again to the Royal Council. The response was, this is not the war you're looking for. This is not the war you're looking for. English finances were far from healthy, with debt of around 100,000 quid, and there were no vital English interests under threat here to override that inconvenient fact. More fundamentally, England was in the grip of a growing economic crisis, which was shortly to turn into what historians, rather matter-of-factly, describe as a mortality crisis. But for the moment, suffice it to say, the grain prices had hit the roof. In fact, they'd gone right through the thatch. Mary was not yet prepared to go ballistic with her council because this en passe had a golden thread in it. It was becoming increasingly clear that Philip would have to come back to England in person to help talk the council round. And for Mary, the return of the king was her most desired outcome, the thing that all her entreaties and tactics had failed so far to secure. On the 20th of March, 1557 then, Philip arrived in great state at Greenwich. 
He was greeted with a 32-gun salute and the court assembled to meet him. On the 23rd of March, we have one of those processions that the Tudors just loved. All the guilds of London had been informed in no uncertain terms that they would be pleased about Philip's return, despite the fact they were in fact, well, you know, not. But they knew which side their royal charter was buttered, and so there they all were, in their finest robes and Sunday best. The brouhaha was partly for the English, but it was also for the Habsburgs back home. Part of Philip's resentment was fuelled by the fact that his position was widely considered to be dishonourable by his own courtiers. That was largely it, though, for Philip's second visit. This had the feeling of a mission for a purpose, rather than a permanent return. He was here to get the support he needed. He was here to bash heads together. Mary was confident that if he came home, all would be well, and assured him by letter that his presence would enable him to obtain what he wants. Now, you might ask whether little old England was really worth all the effort, given those rolling legions of the mighty Holy Roman Empire. And if you are asking that question, it's a reasonable, if slightly dismissive, question to ask. So partly, it is because Philip was proper desperate. It is a point I am sure I will make again. But mighty though were Philip's old and new world dominions, mighty also were his commitments. The spectre of financial collapse will never leave Philip's life. At this point in time, imperial revenues were committed to the money markets for three years ahead. The money markets were therefore understandably not massively keen to advance him any more. The interest rate being charged had been personalised specifically for Philip. Ah, Philip of Spain, welcome. A loan? Well, since it's you, sir, that'll be 54%. A 54% interest rate is not the way to happiness. So, any financial contribution England could make was worth it, and honestly, he was as much interested in money as he was in men. The Spanish Tercio, after all, was well established as the finest fighting force in Europe. But another nugget was Mary's navy. Quietly in the background, the navy was another of Mary's achievement. Nothing dramatic, but just as Northumberland's government had done, Mary had invested in the navy, making sure ships were replaced and maintained. With the following wind, the English navy might well be able to hold the narrow seas and therefore prevent the French from using the sea to transport men and attack Flemish ports. Philip, however, needed to take away a full loaf whatever. He needed nothing less than a declaration of war. The full fat support, semi-skimmed, would just not do. The reason was probably not just the practicalities of having more fighting men. It was Habsburg honour. Philip's position as a consort tore at the pride of his courtiers, and no doubt at his pride too. It was inconceivable that his wife and his subjects would not declare war when he demanded it. His reputation and honour would become the subject of mocking laughter across his domains if this were not so. Mary was absolutely on her husband's side in this. So, not long after Philip arrived on the 1st of April 1557, the Queen summoned the Royal Council and laid out the arguments in favour of declaring war on France. There were two main planks to her argument. The first was the might of France, which was already menacing the whole world. The other was because she was honour-bound to do so from proper whiffly duty, using examples from the Old and New Testament to reinforce her point of the obedience she owed her husband and the power which he had over her as much by divine 
as human law. The council asked for leave to consider the request. The quite why Mary was requesting rather than demanding was moot and of some frustration to Philip as it happens. Nonetheless, hopefully, the Royal Council would respond to royal pressure as the Royal Council was wont to do and all would be well. But to Mary's unconcealed fury, they did not play ball but came back with the answer that they ought not and could not declare war. They would agree financial and naval support to Philip, but would not do more than this. Being in receipt of the wrong answer, Mary ordered them to go away and come back with the right one. They remained defiant, however, and there was stalemate. Just to help matters, on the 10th of April, Pope Paul patiently pushed the potty button once more and decided now would be the perfect time to have a hack at his old enemy, Reginald Poole and friends. He revoked Paul's legatine status and demanded he return to Rome immediately. He investigated Paul's friends in Rome for suspected Lutheran sympathies, and it seems a fair bet that if Paul had been daft enough to actually answer the summons, he would have been in the same boat. He wasn't daft enough, as it happens, but you know, if he had been. Now, this is a bad thing for the Catholic cause for two broad reasons. Firstly, it undermined the authority of the man leading the re-establishment of Catholic practice in England, which, I don't know, seems like a bad move on the face of it. And coincidentally, it removed a powerful voice, pleading with Philip that he should not actively prosecute war against the papacy. Paul also nominated a knackered octogenarian to replace Paul as legate in England and said knackered octogenarian very sensibly refused to take the job. Mary simply refused to let the papal messenger into the country, which seemed sensible also. But Paul was a conscientious and principled man and did not feel he could engage in conversation with the Spanish with things as they were and so a valuable voice in support of peace was lost. Meanwhile, Mary was not about to give up. In the words of the French ambassador, she would force not only men but the elements themselves to consent to her will. Individual councillors were now summoned to her one by one and there was much browbeating. Some were threatened with death, others with loss of property and money. And yet the council, divided though it was, would not as a whole budge. It's worth noting, by the way, that this is much more of a numbers game than it might be in a later context. I'm sorry, I forget whether or not I have mentioned this, but the Royal Council did not operate like a modern cabinet with a collective responsibility. Each of the councillors owed a direct responsibility to the monarch and to the monarch only. The Royal Council was a collection of individual royal advisers. That meant, in these situations, there was no hiding behind a collective decision. Each one of these councillors had to be prepared to face down the wrath of their anointed monarch. And so, some of them did. Philip now began to show some signs of giving up with the classic sour grapes routine. The disdainful, ha! I never wanted any of it anyway, sort of line. The Count of Faria airily informed the Venetian envoy that the, the king could do what he liked with the English nobility because they were so venal. But he probably left them off the hook. Just take the money in ships, because, you know, he was nice that way. Venal or not, most of the councillors were not selling. Not this time. Ironically, it was another Protestant rebellion that transformed the situation. Thomas Stafford was a Protestant who had taken refuge at the court of the French king, Henry II. In January, 
The English ambassador, Nicholas Wooten, reported back worries that Henry might be considering Stafford for some great enterprise. So the English were aware of the threat. Stafford was a descendant of the Duke of Buckingham, the Duke totaled by Henry VIII. Suddenly, on the 23rd of April, Stafford appeared off the Yorkshire coast in the north of England and attacked Scarborough Castle. Now, Scarborough was not the sizzling centre of culture and political activism that it is now, and its castle was run down and poorly manned, so he took it with ease and declared himself protector of the realm, come to rid the country of Mary, who had given up her right to rule by dint of bringing the tyranny of strangers. The good people of Scarborough could not have shown less interest. The response to Stafford's ringing call to arms was the sound of tumbleweed. Not only that, but handily for Mary, the Earl of Westmoreland happened to be passing with a force of local levies, and so he popped over to Scarborough and popped Stafford and his 30 followers into chains. By the end of May, all of them had been executed for treason. No sign of Mary and Mercy there. The whole affair had lasted five days. Well, this was just exactly what Mary and Philip had needed. Obviously, this was a nasty French plot, and a Spanish commander triumphantly declared that the French have spared us the trouble. The English were now going to war against France. When the French ambassador appeared at Henry II's court to deliver the declaration of war to Henry, Henry in turn produced his best not-bothered face and declared that this was all Philip's doing, and since the herald had come from a mere woman, he need listen no longer, and he left the room with a disdainful laugh. Preparation for war now began. The next time you go down to the fish market or the fish counter at your local supermarket, consider the Stafford affair. Because it shares something with a fish counter, namely its odour. There is something undeniably fishy about the whole thing. Talk to me, for example, about Scarborough. Now, I am something of a fan of Scarborough, which is a lovely place and we have family connections. And last time I was there, I had the best doner kebab west of the Bosphorus. And many famous people are born there. Alan Akebourne, the Sitwells, Joseph Roundtree. But as a place to start a Protestant rebellion when the seat of government is at London is a little dodgy. And the Staffords had no local connections that would allow them to raise an army, no tenants or affinity or any such. So why did they go there? Well, there then just happened to be a government army in the vicinity when he landed. How handy is that? I think that falls into the spooky section of the fish counter, if you're asking me. And then everyone was executed, which is a little unusual also. Henry II of France furiously denied that he had anything to do with it, which of course immediately attracts the Rice-Davis defence, since he would have said that, wouldn't he? But historians have been inclined to accept his argument in this case. England joining the war was very much exactly 180 degrees not the desired outcome for France at this point. I mean, really not. Why would he have sent or supported Stafford? Now, as I say, I am not one for conspiracy theories by and large, but it is all just a teensy-veensy bit convenient, is it not? There have been finger pointers, such as from Professor David Lodes, and the finger of Lodes was pointed towards Councillor Deeply Devious and Desperate for Royal Favour, William Paget, as maybe a tricker a siren whose call pulled Stafford onto the lighthouse of treason and destruction so that Mary and Philip could have their war. 
Well, never mind the why and wherefores, the only firm conviction carried to Philip's hesitating heart was that now he had military support. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Philip was not to stay long on this visit, especially now that he had achieved his main objective. He did have another objective which he also tried to convert namely the situation with Elizabeth. Since in May, Renard had written from France that Elizabeth's name was on the lips of every potential rebel. The Princess Elizabeth was currently living in the doghouse, as far as Mary was concerned, although Hatfield House was a doghouse more luxurious than most pooches get to inhabit. A few months previously, Philip pushed once more the idea of marriage for Elizabeth. Although he had no desire to see Elizabeth illegitimised or removed from the succession, nor did he much like the fact that she was such a free agent. So the perfect solution was to marry her off to someone reliable who could maybe keep her under control. You know, it's a bit like a tarpaulin on an Exocet missile. The tarpaulin selected had been unfolded before to form the ground sheet of the tent of immortal love. There was Emmanuel Philibert, Duke of Savoie, a staunchly imperial ally desperate to get his duchy back from the French, who had borrowed it from him. Borrowed it permanently and without its permission, it might be noted. Philibert was an equally staunch Catholic. For Elizabeth, there might have been some advantages, it has to be said. The very same idea had been mooted back in 1554, and Elizabeth had fought it off as only Elizabeth could, with toe, nail and, most importantly, intelligence and wit but there must have been attractions of getting out from the whole fetid atmosphere of sisterly hatred under which she laboured. And as Philip had made clear, by becoming married, she would be clearly identified as Mary's heir as part of the deal. Oddly, Mary wasn't keen about the whole thing, and it's a bit difficult to know why, but it became a bone of quite painful contention between her and Philip. Mary's view of Elizabeth had got no better, indeed, had moved from the mildly acidic to positively vitriolic, so much so that people began to notice. Michele, the Venetian ambassador, remarked that she was prey to the hatred she bore her sister. Mary was bewildered by Elizabeth's evident popularity and had convinced herself that her hatred of Elizabeth was now a matter of conscience, and Mary's conscience was an elemental force. Why a matter of conscience, you ask? because she had convinced herself that Elizabeth bore a distinct similarity to Mark Smeaton, the hated Anne Boleyn's famous court musician and alleged lover, of course. So, she could surely not become queen. As the arguments between husband and wife blossomed, Mary articulated her deepest fear of her feelings for her husband. I shall become jealous and uneasy of you, which will be worse to me than death, for I have already begun to taste of such to my great regret. Either way, it became irrelevant, because Elizabeth would not wear it. Maybe it would secure the succession for her, but Elizabeth was quite capable of realising that every day that passed without an heir for Mary and Philip made her position stronger. Elizabeth would not have the succession from the hands of Philip, and if she was to be married, she would choose her own partner. And so, she gave the idea a firm whack of the right boot and sent it spiralling into the outer reaches of the stands. She would wait, wait, and see. 
By July 1557, Philip was gone, back to the Low Countries and to the war. Meanwhile, London was not pleased about this war in support of the Spaniards that they roundly detested. Now, given that there can be few peoples in the modern world as friendly as the Spanish, it is interesting to note that the attitude of the Dutch had been the same as experienced in England. They had detected in Philip an insular Spanishness which they found absent in his cosmopolitan father Charles V. In the Netherlands, the Spaniards also had been regarded as aloof and arrogant to the point of tyranny. However, the die was now cast for war. When Philip left in July 1557, he took with him an English contingent with as many as 10,000 fighting men, which is handy, hardly decisive, but definitely handy. He left in England focusing on mobilising the navy into the Channel, but also needing to keep an idea on the back door, Scotland. Scotland was, of course, in alliance with France, and indeed Mary of Guise was their regent, and so trouble could be anticipated, an opportunity for yet another Scottish raid. However, Scotland's Facebook page was marked complicated. In a way, Scotland was presented yet again with a rather nasty dichotomy, to be part of a French world or choose friendship with the Sassanac. Now, you might think this would be as much of a no-brainer as the Six Nations, anyone except the English, but in fact, the idea of being subject to French hegemony was not attractive either. Historian Anna Whitelock refers to a meeting just after the declaration of war against France between the English Earl of Westmoreland and his Scottish counterpart, the Earl of Castles. This was one of the normal meetings held over the metaphorical barbed wire of the Bordas to try at least to minimise the violence of the Reavers and settle disputes before they got too out of hand. Nonetheless, there was a bit of bant going on, which I'm ashamed to say Westmoreland started. My lord, I think it but folly for us to treat together now, we having broken with France and ye being French for your lives. Westmoreland was suggesting that the Scots were essentially French subjects now. Castles shot back. By the mass, I'm no more French than ye are Spaniard. Touché, mon brave, touché. Castles was, of course, returning the taunt by referring to the Spaniards, but more interestingly, there's a feeling of some brotherhood in there. We are both subject to much foreign influence. Neither of us really like it. The Scots did indeed mobilise for war and the English Royal Council confidently expected Philip to declare war on Scotland on behalf of Spain. After all, one good turn deserves another. We've done our bit. Now you do yours. And Philip did no such thing. The Flemings and the Scots had trading connections and Philip saw no reason to damage his own interests now that he had the English commitment to war nestling lightly but firmly in his back pocket. It was yet another bone of contention Another example where Spanish interests seemed to be paramount for the King of England. Anyway, whining aside, the war started brightly for the English. Mary's navy proved pretty effective at sweeping the French from the Channel, and there was a victory over the French army at Saint-Quentin near Calais, in which the English played a small and rather late part, but you know, better late than never. The victory would have dire consequences for Pope Paul IV, though. The defeat at Saint-Quentin forced Henry II to withdraw the Duke of Guise and his army from Italy to come back and defend the home range. This meant that the Duke of Alba faced only papal troops. This time Alba was not at home to Mr Tricky Truce and entered Rome victorious in September 1557 and Paul was forced to beg for peace. So, a good start. 
and by the end of the year, reports from Calais indicated confidently that the weather had turned rather chilly and the French were in absolutely no position to try anything on. So English troops were withdrawn from one of the fortresses of the Calais Pale at Guin and reinforcements for Calais were cancelled. The war, after all, was not cheap. The fleet alone was now costing 80,000 quid a year and the army was costing money also. A loan had been raised, which had produced only £100,000 and there was quite a lot of backsliding, so many gentlemen were hauled in front of the council and there was much beating of brows. Until the brows had been sufficiently beaten to yield up a bit more. It kind of worked, but did nothing to make an increasingly unpopular regime less unpopular. So, we have foreign influence, a war nobody wanted, a king who seemed to be playing for the other side, disruption to trade, bad harvests, sky-high prices and malnutrition. Not the best picture, but for the ordinary people of England, there was far worse. England was seized by an epidemic. This is the mortality crisis referred to at the start. It seems to have been an influenza type of disease and its impact was devastating. It was almost universal with only a few areas of England escaping. It could be that between 1556 and 1560, 200,000 people died from the disease in a population of just over 3 million. As I have mentioned, England was, at the time, in the grip of a population increase. Well, for a few years, the engine of growth was slammed rudely and violently into reverse. And in those years, it's calculated that the population actually fell from 3.16 million to 2.96, with the birth rate falling as well as the death rate growing. Now, none of this was Mary's fault, just as it had not been Henry VIII's fault or Edward's fault. But Mary got the blame, as you do, because it seemed reasonably straightforward evidence of divine disfavour, because, you know, 7% of your subjects dropping dead from a mysterious fever wouldn't appear to exactly qualify as the seal of divine approval. Of course, this is all terrible, and Christmas 5057 was a gloomy affair at court, but soon it would be New Year, and with a bit of luck, it would be New Year, New You, and things would be happier. The clouds would part. But the marshes of Calais were frozen in the cold, and over the frozen marshes, more bad news came crawling. I do hope that is suitably chilling. Thank you for listening, as always, everyone. Thank you so much for the iTunes reviews and posts and comments. I love them all. Enjoy a lovely fortnight chilling. Good luck and see you all soon. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.